Hey guys, and welcome to the Business As Usual podcast episode 59. Today, I'm here with Zach Oldsbury, who is a content writer at TLDR News, uh, specializes in focusing on, on British politics mostly, don't you, Zach? Yes, mostly. So you obviously were very busy towards the end of last year. I followed a lot of your content on the Brexit negotiations as that was pushing towards the final stage there indeed that certainly was uh, quite a busy period of time with lots of things to write about coming at, at us left right and center yeah and so it's an interesting time now obviously because the timelines that everyone was looking at have i guess been completely thrown out of whack uh, oh yes absolutely <laughs> i guess with with boris johnson being out of out of action there for about two weeks he was in hospital and i'm sure he's he's still not up to 100 percent capacity now that but would he, certainly have pushed things back regardless of everything else that's that's been going on not not really in terms of the brexit negotiations because they're mainly conducted between the two negotiating teams led by Michel Barnier on the EU side and David Frost on the UK side okay. with their relative political um, appointment being Michael Gove, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and one of the European Union, uh, one of the European Commission Vice Presidents. So his out of action hasn't really been much of an issue there. The main underlying reasons for the uh, negotiations falling three rounds behind has been the issues to do with uh, conducting them via um, by a teleconference, basically, yeah. where you know, technical issues and, and such, and all, and mainly, oh, not mainly, and also um, both Michel Barnier and um, Deb Frost falling in as well was. Uh, more of a contributing factor to the delay the Boris Johnson uh, illness, which thankfully he is said to be heading back to work on Monday. Okay, that's good. good news. That's good to hear. So in terms of, I, I think we'll take a step back here because mo most of the listeners to this podcast won't be completely fluent with the Brexit uh, negotiations and the whole mm -hmm. situation in general. So do you want to just step us through from, say, from when the vote went through to agree to the deal after the election, what mm -hmm. is the process from there to get uh, the UK out of the EU and set up as with, in, a, with a trade trade deal? As in, as in the process from the referendum result to them leaving the EU or from the no, general no, election? No, so, no, so from, uh, say, so from the general election, Boris Johnson obviously mm -hmm. won, the Conservatives won, and so they were yep. able to put Boris Johnson's deal through Parliament. Yes. So then from my understanding, there's then an 11-month timeline for them to get a trade deal Yeah. Uh, agreed so to. Yeah, so once the uh, withdrawal agreement was ratified by uh, the UK Parliament and um, the European institutions, the UK left on the 31st of January. Yeah. So the UK is officially no longer a part of the European Union. And as a part of the withdrawal agreement, there was, or there is, a transition period from the 31st of January until um, the 1st of January next year. Okay. With the option to extend that once, and the deadline for that extension is uh, Ju June, July, in the middle of the year. Yep. Um, and that can and you can it can be extended only once for up to two years. Okay. So the purpose of the transition period is to negotiate a um, to negotiate a free trade agreement, or uh, to put it more accurately. A, a future relationship because mm -hmm. uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU post-Brexit will be deeper than your standard FTA yeah. because there'll be issues to do with transport, civil nuclear materials, aviation, uh, and such like, which go much, which go beyond uh, a standard free trade agreement. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so after uh, the UK officially left in February, they thrashed out uh, a timetable that was expected to be a number of rounds um, with both sides taking stock uh, around the middle of the year to decide whether to extend or not. Yeah. Now, the decision to extend is the withdrawal agreement isn't clear uh, as to who is responsible for initiating that decision, but it has to be a mutually agreeable mm-hmm. decision to extend. And the EU was pretty clear. They don't really have a problem with extending uh, the transition period, especially now, um, and especially if it means a greater period of time to thrash out the areas of contention between the two sides. Uh, the question about whether to so in practice, it's a UK decision, and yep. the messages coming out of Downing Street are fairly hardline that the UK won't be extending, and that even if the EU asks, the UK will say no. Um, it will be interesting to see how that holds, particularly with uh, Sakir Starmer replacing Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it's be quite. It's, to put it pol- uh, politely, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't the most effective opposition leaders <laughs> out there. Yeah, and Sakir Starmer is. Uh, I think it'd be fair to say he's the anti-Boris, where whereas Boris is boisterous. Secure is boring, whereas Johnson is not. Where he, he's not detailed focus, he's more of a CEO type uh, leader. Where he, he he's very delegation delegate heavy. Yeah. So he'll delegate to his prospective ministers and expect them to go off. Secure is very much a forensic barrister in terms of as it was his training, um, and with a lightning focus on the detail. Yeah. So to see how that changes the dynamic, particularly going forward, particularly as uh, the coronavirus crisis subsides in seriousness and the economic uh, result of the crisis becomes clear, um, it'll be interesting to see how that line changes. Um, And to be honest, I'd say the chances that the UK does extend for any period of time is more likely than not, because for all the hard rhetoric, uh, there's an even harder reality, which says that it's just not possible to um, to not extend because there just hasn't been enough time to negotiate a meaningful agreement to have ready yeah. by the end of the year. And obviously with the current situation in the world restricting travel, that just makes mm-hmm. it a million times harder. Uh, yes. Because now, now in terms of the negotiating rounds, is there a standard mm-hmm. protocol for how those would take place uh, in terms of usually you would obviously meet somewhere, the two negotiating teams would meet and they would... Mm-hmm. Is, is, there gener- is there generally a an agenda of a certain set of points that they want to hammer out in those negotiations. Yeah. Um, how does that generally work? Yeah. So the decision before coronavirus was that each side would change location. So the first round was in Brussels, the second round would be in London and vice versa, yeah. with uh, both negotiating teams splitting up into their various uh, areas because of some going on to fishing, some on goods, some on services, some on aviation transport, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, and that's obviously been thrown completely out of whack. And they're limited by what they can do uh, by technology yep. at the moment. And they seem to be doing a decent job. They're making headway in the area in areas of mutual interest and convergence, like goods, services, transport, civil nuclear materials, et cetera. But the underlying... Um, Contentious points remain uh, contentious without a, a very clear uh, way through. Uh, mm-hmm. And because they're not meeting, you don't really get those water cooler conversations where you can off the record float, well, what if we gave way on this? 
what would you give way on and, and such. So yeah, they, they, they certainly will make the negotiations quite uh, different, shall we say? Yeah. So and, and what are those they, points of disagreements? Or, or um, contention? There are there are, there are a few overarching points of contention. The first is the shape of the deal. For example, obviously the UK wants individual separate agreements for each area. Yeah. So an agreement on fishing, an agreement on goods and services, an agreement on aviation and such yeah. with their own individual governance mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Whereas the European Union wants more of an association agreement type um, of structure where each area is underpinned by a single overarching governance uh, mechanism with the role of the European Court of Justice, which in of itself is a point of contention because the UK insists with good reason, but but to to a point where it's a bit overplayed that the the ECJ can't have a role in, um, in the agreement. Uh, for areas like data protection and well, and the and interpreting EU law, that might be a bit difficult to maintain. Um, another point of contention is the role of fi- is fishing and the shape of the fishery, uh, fisheries agreement. Yeah, this is an area where the EU is being completely unrealistic. So. I'm not sure if you're how familiar your listeners are with the common fisheries policy. Uh, assume but, very little to none. Okay, so the so the the CFP is one of the two EU's principal. It's a it's a significant uh, policy area in the EU, including the common agricultural policy. Yeah, and what it does is it um, allocates quotas for fish to individual member states. Okay. So all territorial waters, all, all fishing waters in the EU are open slather for everyone. So a Spanish fisherman can fish in Danish waters and a Swedish fisherman can fish in British waters. And they can allocate and they've got their respective quota. Yep. Now the quota and the CFP as a whole in Britain has been very contentious because it's associated rightly or wrongly with the decline in the British fishing industry, mm-hmm. which it's, it's certainly, it's not a completely crackers thing to suggest because the because UK fishermen have generally received poorer um, quotas than their European counterparts. So there's been no, so they haven't had much fish they're legally able to catch compared yep. to prior to joining the EU. And the UK wants a new method of um, allocating quotas. Okay. One that's based more on um, scientific methods because the current CFP uh, quota is calculated by historic catches, okay. which is not that – it's not – Good. It's not conducive to maintaining a healthy um, uh, fishing ecosystem because yep. it can lead to you know, overfishing and such. Whereas the UK wants one that's more scientific based. Yeah. Um, and the EU wants to com- wants to continue the status quo, basically, where their access to UK waters is as it was prior to Brexit, which yep. is completely unrealistic, especially when the EU has been insisting that the UK has to wake up to the realities of Brexit and that there are some trade-offs and negatives to be had. And to be fair to Her Majesty's government, they have for the most part, whereas the EU are trying to have their cake and eat it, so to speak, by accepting Brexit and not accepting that fishing quotas will be changing. Yeah. Uh, to the, what extent another, are are like what what are the negotiating like powers differential between the EU and the UK? Just to get an idea of that, like in terms of 
the EU pushing on maintaining the status quo on the CFP, are they, is that a negotiating tactic that they intend to have to walk back or do they honestly think that they can achieve that through the negotiation? That's that's an interesting question. Um, Michel Barnier tried to, it looked like in the early days, tried to walk back a bit from the hardline perspective of no change uh, to something that where there would be more space to come to an agreement and to make concessions. However, because of the decision-making process in the, in the EU, the member states, particularly France and Spain and Denmark, who have a lot of skin in the game, they've got a lot to lose, um, pushed back on that and pushed um, the negotiation position back into a more hard line perspective. So whether the EU intends to um, just use that as something that they can give an example, they can give as an example of them making concessions compared to whether it's something they realistically think they can achieve, I'm not particularly sure on. Mm-hmm. However, the UK's position on this is quite strong because at the end of the transition period, the UK will become an independent coastal state and the common fisheries policy will not apply. So they can essentially, it would be a hard Brexit in yeah. terms of fishing if the EU were not to budge or they were to collapse the negotiations over fishing because yeah. they would not they would not win that. Yeah. They cannot have the status quo unless the UK actively gives them the status quo and they're not going to do that for various reasons, both symbolically because of the connection between the decline in the fishing industry and the UK's membership and um, domestic politics in that in the general election, both in 2017 and 2019, the Conservatives won uh, more rural Scottish seats where the fishing industry was much more vibrant prior to um, the UK's joining of the EU. And it would also help the Scottish Tories in the broader Scottish debate on independence because uh, it would enable them to say, look, we have done this for Scottish fishermen, whereas the nationalists would sell Scottish fishermen down the river again and such like. So the the reality of the EU getting the status quo, I think, is none, Yeah, quite honest. So what are the other uh, contentious points being debated? The the other contentious point is the so-called level playing field, which... Both sides have arguments, and they're, they're not spurious. Um, the UK's perspective position is that um, it will not accept anything that the EU has not already done with other um, free trade agreements, namely Canada, Japan, and such. Yep. Um, and the areas of the level playing field that the level playing field applies to mainly state aid, labour rights, environmental concerns and such. The It seems, or at least the messaging coming from number 10, is that the UK would be perfectly happy to accept non-regression. They will not lower standards below what they already are. Yep. Whereas the EU is pushing, especially on state aid, pushing more for dynamic alignment. And that is the case for state aid, where they want, or at least expect the UK to copy and paste EU state aid law or state aid regulations into domestic law. Yeah. And that for the UK government is a red line. Yeah. Exactly, because that goes to the heart of what Brexit is all about. Yeah. It throws, it, it makes a mockery of the taking back control and parliamentary sovereignty arguments. Yeah. And I don't think that they are going to be able to get that. I think that there's, there, will, there will be room for concession, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the extent to which that concession would be, I'm not particularly sure. Um, I 
normally if negotiations were continuing as they were intended, there would be snippets here and there from people that have overheard things at the water cooler that they haven't um, eventuated. So I'm not particularly sure where the landing zone is. Yeah. But undoubtedly there is a greater extent of a landing zone there than on fishing. So in terms of what that would look like in, for the EU, they'd probably look to negotiate for minimum standards that are close, more closely aligned to what the EU is shooting for, mm. as opposed I mean, to having be, a formal mechanism of mm. giving I mean, up the control. Be, I think a realistic landing zone would be more outcomes-based yeah. than um, just simply accepting EU regulation as written and, prescri- and transcribing that into the domestic law. Yeah, um, obviously that opens up the whole. I mean, that that, that undo, undoes Brexit to a large extent. Yeah, it, it it strikes the heart of you know the philosophical case for Brexit, but the you know whether the UK. You know, I I don't particularly think the UK uh, has any intention of uh, regressing on these. Um, on these er- in these areas, especially when you look at Johnson's electoral coalition that won last year, um, whether uh, traditional Labour voters that voted Tory for the first time in Bishop Auckland would accept a government in Westminster that they voted for um, to start undoing Labour rights or workers' rights, I, I mean, that, that's just politically, I don't think they would do that at all. Yeah, um, and it wouldn't be a good look. So, yeah, the possible landing landing zone would be between um, non-regression and um, dynamic alignment, but not dynamic alignment. Yeah, where is where are the negotiations sitting on the uh, immigration field? Um, I don't think that's come up yet mm-hmm. how the UK um, approaches uh, mobility in general is at the moment or at least prior to coronavirus it was fairly clear it was how any of us would get EU nationals would be treated as any other national okay. um, in a slightly in a more liberal way for example reduction in um, minimum salary requirements for a work visa, uh, removing the labour market, uh, labour market test, and such. But that changes with coronavirus because the UK now realises, to a greater extent, um, how much its economy relies on "quote unquote" low-skilled uh, labour, yep. namely you know, supermarket um, workers, nurses who should be worth noting are not low skilled but that in the immigration debate in the uk is a particular flashpoint because of the higher number of migrants but the the one thing the eu is adamant on is that no there isn't any discrimination so the uk can't have a preferential at least from its perspective a preferential arrangement for germany over romania yep each member state has to be treated the same. And I think if the UK was to come back and say, we would be open to a special visa class or what have you for EU nationals, I think the EU would be quite happy yep. uh, with that and wouldn't exactly have any issues. It's just a, it's a matter for the UK side whether they want to do that across that Rubicon. Yeah. So the the days of sort of open travel are, if not over, they're, they're severely restricted now. The the days of freedom of movement as constituted before Brexit are certainly over. Mm-hmm. But it's worth noting the UK never, well, they gold-plated freedom of movement. Because in 2003, I think it was, there was something called the Citizens' Rights Directive, which limited um, freedom of movement of EU nationals, for example, 
namely basically said um if you, you need a job after i think it was three months if you don't have a job you know got to go back to your yeah. to your home member state that i think that and the messaging during brexit and the subsequent period may leave may leave some room for compromise with a special visa class which would basically give EU nationals the, the ability to come to the UK freely and search for a job uh, for up to three months. Yeah. With kind of similar ish to the special class visa here, with but instead of being yeah, instead of being um, unlimited, you're limited for three months until you get a job. Yeah. In which case then it becomes unlimited. But whether the UK government thinks of that or indeed wants to implement something like that i'm not sure maybe yeah. given the um given how um boris johnson name checked both the portuguese and a new zealand nurse uh new zealand nurses during um his easter sunday speech so yeah. there's possible there's the possibility of a rowback in um immigration rhetoric but whether they do it or not i'm not sure i think they might I hope they might, yep. but we shall see. So turning to the rest of the world, what does it, the path forward for the UK look like? I know several years ago, back during the Obama administration, he made the, the comment that the UK would be at the back of the queue mm -hmm. in terms of striking a deal with the US and whether that was obviously he was campaigning at the time for mm. Remain. Um, and we've obviously been in a fairly significant shift in US politics. What do you think it looks mm. like with the US and the trade deal there? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think before coronavirus, things were looking okay and they were making, although things were starting to become a bit shaky with the UK, prioritizing the EU over the US mm -hmm. but it, it all depends on the election if Trump remains president yep. which would be an interesting turn of events um, I'm not sure how he would square his America first rhetoric with his um, how would you describe his, his affection for the UK and his relationship with Boris Johnson yeah. But I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how Biden would um, approach things as well. Yep. Because uh, he might be similar to um, Obama's perspective from 2016. But I think that uh, sentiment is void, given the UK has left the EU, and that, yeah, that question there's is a re realism now. It's yeah, no longer I a campaign. Indeed. I think the the prospects for a trade agreement in general are positive, but there will, of course, be uh, pinch points on agri on um, food products. Yeah. Uh, the pin-up being chlorinated washed chicken. Um, in the UK, that's anathema, and it's become almost it's, – it's become a toxic image um, of a free trade agreement with the US – and would be almost symbolic of the UK shifting its sphere of influence or its regulatory sphere and environment from a U um, European one to a US one. So that would be a contentious, that in agriculture as a whole would be a contentious point. Yeah. Uh, whether the UK wants to lower its um, agriculture and animal welfare standards in particular, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, especially on animal welfare. Yeah. Uh, and in light of coronavirus as well, I don't think they would be too keen to lower um, those standards, which might have a, a negative effect on the overall shape of the trade agreement as a whole. Yeah. But in general, the outlook I would say is positive. So, what's the status quo now? Is the UK just operating under WTO rules for now until they no. can? So, With the US? 
with yeah with the US and with everyone else. Um, with the with the UK is still at the moment as a part of the EU's customs union and single market. So uh, the trade agreements before Brexit that the UK had with the rest of the world through the EU, like mm-hmm. Japan uh, and Canada and such, remain. And quite a few of those have been rolled over okay. uh, during the uh, during that few years before Brexit. And I would imagine, well, not so much now anymore, but they, the UK government and under um, Liam, Dr. Liam Fox as International Trade Secretary were making headway in um, rolling over continuity agreements. And I think most of those have been achieved. I'm not sure of the number off the top of my head. But, yeah, so it, it really does depend um, on the country that you're looking at. Yep. For example, for the US, they would mainly be on WTO rules, but for Canada, through the provisionally applied um, uh, free trade agreement they have with the EU. Yeah, and obviously the, the WTO has become relatively toothless in the last six yes. months or so. So. Mm. That's um, so. Obviously, we're we're moving into a, a bit of a different world, at least for the short term, with the WTO being largely mm. out of action. The trade mm. agreements, these bespoke trade agreements that are being negotiated around the world, are becoming more important. Mm, indeed, and I think um, coronavirus as a whole, the effect that it will have in going forward, will just cement the. Uh, cement those changes yeah with the wto so if you have a little bit of time just to finish i thought it might be interesting to talk about the eu in particular obviously Mm. they are it's it's going to be a bit of a scary situation now with the Mm. coronavirus coming out of on the other side of this there's going to be a lot more debt uh those Mm. southern states are going to be probably in a fair bit of trouble and we've Very seen so. some movement over the last couple of weeks with with regard to discussing a new relationship between the northern states and the southern states in terms mm. of the, their economics, although Germany seems to be pretty much holding out with the status quo. Mm. What do you think is the, the direction that's going to take? I don't think it's going to take it going to go in the direction that it needs to go. What would you say um, the direction it needs to go is? It, it needs to go in a, I mean, the EU, need, or at least particularly the Eurogroup, need to wake up and realise what they've done. Mm-hmm. They've entered into a monetary union without a fiscal union or yeah. without some form of um, fiscal transfers from wealthier member states to poorer member states. Yeah. And their inability to realize that is doing long-term damage to the eu and to the eurozone as a whole what they've so what they need to do really is just grasp that nettle and move in that direction with a full fat banking union and some form of um fiscal transfers from richer member states to poorer member states and not in loans that's that's key it has to be in grants, as we would have here where um, GST raised from Victoria is transferred over to um, the Northern Territory. Yeah. I think the, the technical term is um, horizontal fiscal equalization. Yeah. That's something that the EU needs to do, um, or the Eurozone in particular needs to do, um, in order to put the Euro on a more stable footing. Their inability to do that is concerning. Because that just cements the uh, bipolar nature of the eurozone, where between the frugal north led by Germany, Denmark, or not Denmark, um, the Netherlands, Finland, and such, and Club Med between um, Italy, Greece, moving over as well into Spain and to a greater extent France, um, and the, I mean the, the further the, the two sides. Uh, from each other become, the more precarious the Eurozone's stability becomes as well. Yeah. Because you can't 
have a situation where um, sub-sovereign entities, that being Eurozone member states, have debt in well over 100% of GDP yeah. without the ability to uh, have monetary levers um, in which to rectify the situation. And on top of a situation where you have um, the strict constraints of um, the convergence criteria and the, and the fiscal compact, which severely restrict um, each member state's ability to get themselves out of these crises and crises in future, especially when you have um, member states with double the debt uh, as a uh, proportion of GDP than the convergence cr uh, criteria dictate. Yeah. It's, and as a result of that, you end up with a, an undermining of consent for um, European membership, uh, EU membership. Uh, I think a poll, a single poll, it's worth noting, had um, in a hypothetical situation um, in Italy, uh, only a couple of point lead for remaining in the EU and over leaving the EU. And that is a, a very precarious place for the European Union to be in, where there is a growing sense of um, at least hostility towards the European Union in one of its founding member states, yeah. especially when uh, the waiting government or the government in waiting after the next election is going to be led by um, the League and Brothers of Italy, who are both very much on the right and very uh, Eurosceptic. Yep. So, I don't know, I know the EU was meeting on Thursday, I believe, mm. in uh, regard to what the recovery is going to look like. And the hot button issue right now is so-called corona bonds. Mm. How likely do you think it's going to be that some sort of ECB solution is found where they, they issue bonds like that? I don't, that ECB, that's going, um, I don't think that we're going to get into a situation where corona bonds or euro bonds as a whole become reality because you have the differing um, interests in the euro group, euro group in particular between um, the northern states and the southern states. You have, for example, the Netherlands being bitterly opposed to corona bonds um, with Germany being sympathetic to that perspective. Yep. against Greece and France that want some form of neutralized um, debt issuance. And yeah. I, I, just, I don't see a way through that, especially when council decisions like this need um, unanimity. So yeah. I, I, I don't particularly see them getting through that. They might, they, as I think they did come through with some form of fudge um, allowing the European Commission to borrow more yep. in order to fund um, recovery efforts. But in terms of full-fat uh, mutualized debt, I don't think it's going to happen unless there's a significant shift in political thinking in places like the Netherlands and Germany. And yep. even in Germany, that it, it would face some um, hurdles requiring a vote in the Bundestag and it change the German constitution. Oh, really? Mm, and uh, indeed. And there's a, I think it's on the 5th of next month, there's a, a ruling being issued by the German Constitutional Court on some of the EU's actions, oh, the ECB's actions in um, during the previous crisis, which will be very interesting to see. And um, it might, and it will have a uh, significant effect on what the EU can do going forward. Yeah. So, to, to see that result would be so very interesting. So what actions, do you know specifically what actions those were? Um, so I think they're looking at, uh, I'm not too familiar with the case, I've only just seen it in passing, mm -hmm. but if I remember correctly, it'll be with regards to the ECB's um, purchasing of bonds, yep. which some see as um, bailouts and fiscal transfers by the back door, okay. which, are which are contrary to the um, 
to the European treaties. I think it's Treaty of Maastricht that um, prohibits bailouts. Okay. So it will be interesting to see what specifically the arguments of that of, uh, that challenge and what uh, the court decides. Very interesting. But Obviously, Christine that, Lagarde has, hasn't been shy about jumping back into asset purchases. So, mm, though I think, to be quite honest, I think um, I think Christine Lagarde will, will, will prove to be wanting compared to Mario Draghi, who from the get go was very much anything, you know, whatever it takes yeah, whatever to save the euro. Whereas Christine Lagarde has had a few missteps early on, and. I'm not. I, I don't. I don't really see her being able to do what it need, what needs to be done, which is you know, the Euro, uh, the ECB buying bonds and monetizing debt to the level that uh, that needs to be done. Yeah. So, do you think? I mean, we'll step into the realm of speculation completely now. Do you mm. think that? the euro will be in, in serious trouble in two or three years once we see the full effects of this? Yes. Yes, I think it already is in, in serious trouble and it's been in serious trouble since the eurozone crisis where um, the underlying uh, philosophical basis of the, uh, of the euro as constructed um, has been seriously challenged because you have, I think, Italy still still has not recovered in terms of GDP yeah. uh, per capita from where it was prior to um, uh, the Great Recession in 2008. Yeah. And you have, because of the euro, you've, you've got this um, undercurrent of, how would you describe it? This undercurrent that isn't, um, it isn't good for European of intra EU relations, where you have hostilities and competing um, interests between the two member states, and the argument over Corona bonds is is case in point, where both sides just cannot agree on something that needs to be done. Yeah, and instead you have the North insisting on measures which are um, detrimental in the South, where essentially just settling them with more debt and then returning to the status quo ante in terms of the um, fiscal compact. Yeah. Uh, and that that's, that would be disastrous. So I think the, the euro is in, a, is in serious trouble if they get this wrong. And I, I fear they are getting it wrong. Yeah. Whether you see the, res, the results of that in two, three or ten years, who knows? But the the seed, the seeds of discontent have been well and truly planted, and it's, it'll be good. To, it'll be important to see what the um, heads of government and state do in the European Union have been to deal with it. Yeah. Whether they're willing to to finally do what they need to do or continue muddling through is will be one to watch. Yeah, definitely. I think I read um, Joseph Stiglitz's book on on the Euro. Of- probably six months ago now and I think I need to go back and it's, have a look. It's sitting on my bedside table at the moment. <laughs> it's, I love that. It's a uh, very good one. I love it. it is, I, I started reading it when I was on exchange and then popped it back on the bookshelf because this is just getting too dense. And it I picked is. it up again. It's, it's a very, very good book. Yeah, it is very dense. Mm, it's, a very, it's very good. Yeah. Even, even for me when I didn't, I didn't study economics, I'm still finding it quite, quite easy to to digest, even though it is dense and hard to hard to read. Yeah, and there's def- there's definitely a, a couple of chapters in there about what a breakup of the euro would look like, um, mm. and I I don't think we're we're a long way in terms of if if things were to continue to go down the road they're going. I don't think we're a long way from something like that becoming a reality. I think it's also important to um, remind ourselves of Angela Merkel's quote, I think it was in 2013, where she equated the euro with the EU as a whole. Mm -hmm. So whether you can have a 
uh, a disintegration of the euro, whether in part or in whole, while maintaining uh, the integrity of the EU will be one to will be quite interesting, yeah. given that there is no explicit escape hatch in the treaties to wind back monetary union. Yeah, and of course that depends on whether you have a, a controlled and a conscience, uh, a, a, sorry, conscious um, winding back of monetary union, or whether it's just explosive that happens um, without any input. And, you won't know it's happened until it's happened. Yeah, which you might end up having if um, if the Italians elect a government which is hostile to the European Union. Yeah, which they which they look it looks like they will. Yeah, definitely. There, there was an interesting point in Stiglitz's book. Something that I think was at least he references uh, Warren Buffett as having proposed it is a seri- uh, a system wherein the trade between the cu- the countries within the euro can be augmented with a system of of chits or tokens <clears throat> which can be issued on exports or imports depending on how you want to revalue the currency or revalue mm. the economy, so effectively give some form of monetary control back to the mm. to the the states while maintaining the that, euro. But that reminds me of I think it was Norman Lamont, was it Norman Lamont or Nigel Lawson? I think it was mm-hmm. in the eighties uh, when Margaret Thatcher was still prime minister. He proposed. Um, I think it was called a hard, a soft echo, whereby um, monetary union would be achieved de facto instead of de jour, whereby each member state's currencies would be a legal tender in everyone else's, and you would essentially have um, the survival of the fittest, where people choose which currency to use, and yeah. you over time end up with um, the EU using an, a single currency, yeah. whether that would be the French franc, the the Deutsche Mark, or the or pound sterling. Yeah. But there's a very interesting point in Angela Merkel's um, biography that I read, where Germany, where Greece came very close to being temporarily at least pushed from the eurozone, mm-hmm. but they just came back from the, they just pulled themselves back from the brink. But uh, yeah. If they and if they had done that, well, I think the euro would be in a much, much better posi- uh, position than it would be now. Yeah, it you know, certainly everything, would. Everything could have changed if yeah. that one decision was um, pushed forward. I think it was um, oh, Schäuble. I think it was Schäuble that tried to. That was the one that restrained them from that but i need to double check the book is that uh which biographies are you talking about there because i I have been looking to pick one up on merkel i think it was um matthew fortrop yeah angela merkel uh, europe's most influential leader yeah certainly a very good very good read Certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll, I'll look to pick that one up. I'm currently reading Tim Shipman's book on the on the Brexit saga. Oh, he, he's, the All Out he's, War. Um, that's, it's a good book. Certainly a good book. His um, his next offering will be very very interesting to read. Mm-hmm. But if you're also looking at another book to get, I'd look at Collapse from no, by Ian Kearns. Yeah, that looks at a hypothetical, um, or looks at the consequences of the EU collapsing. Okay, certainly, it's a very interesting and scary read. Oh, that's so a bit it may be a up. bit, it may be alarmist at times, but it is certainly, certainly an eye opener. Like I, at, at some points during the um, during the Brexit process, I was. A bit radical and said, "Well, sort of. 
let the whole thing collapse. And I, I read that book and I thought, well, no. <laughs> it would completely change my thinking. Um, yeah. And it's weird because then I, now I end up finding myself someone that supported Brexit, agreeing with some of the most ardent federalists on Twitter. <laughs> it, is, it is really strange, but really enjoyable. Well, I think that that's a good sign that you're able to read something, no. take on new information and change your opinion. Read. Would recommend it to anyone. I'll definitely have a look at it. Anyway, oh. um, I was just saying, I've had you for, for 50 minutes, so thank you for giving up some of your evening to have a, have a chat about all that, all of that. No problem at all. My pleasure. And um, for anyone who wants to sort of follow you, you on, on Twitter or? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly on Twitter. My name's Zach Ellensbury. My handle is at Zach Ellensbury. That's one. Awesome. So if you can go over there and uh, have a look also at the TLDR News YouTube channel. Certainly. Very enlightening. Thank you for coming on. Most welcome.